Ephesians 1, we'll read down through chapter 2, verse 10. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him, in love He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, He made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His kind intention, which He purposed in Him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. That is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In Him also, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of His glory. For this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his people toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God... Being rich in mercy, 
because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Well, good morning. Let's uh, turn our hearts and seek our king again. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come together this first day of the week to join our hearts and to say that you are worthy. You're worth it all. You're worth all the thoughts in our minds. You are worth all the deepest desires and the passing fancies, the, the impulsive Moments, You are worth every choice. And as we already prayed earlier this morning, we do want to bring our heart and mind and soul and strength to bring ourselves near to you through the finished work of your son, to press in without fear of rejection. Every believer here this morning, looking away from ourselves, we look to you. God, what hope do we see in us? We see so many twisted brambles and wrong choices. God, we see a tangle of thoughts and emotions that we don't even know how to decipher. We look in our homes and our little church here, our nation, and all we seem to see is just an ocean of need. But in you... No matter how great the need is around us and within us, we find not just a great supply, but an infinite one. The sin of all humanity mounted up one on top of the next does not rise higher than your extraordinary mercy and grace. And the problems we face are not beyond your wisdom and justice. And the enemies are not beyond your strength. God, you are the warring King, and you sent your son to take the field of battle on behalf of people who fought against him and weren't just helpless. But we have, because of your love, gladly laid down every weapon, everything that we used against you, God. You've conquered us and drawn us and won our hearts. And so now we can say when we read the Bible, like Paul, for us, there is one God. Not many, and one mediator between God and man, the God-man Christ Jesus. He is our everything, Father. He is our life. It would be easier for us to list this morning the good things that He isn't to us, God. What would we say? But 
how would we fully describe back to you all that we've found him to be? He is altogether lovely, the chief of 10,000, and our beloved is ours, and we are his. So we pray, having given us so much, the things that Chuck just read, gift after gift, privilege after privilege, essential, life-giving things, contrasted with who we are, the amazingness of grace, God, we thank you and we pray that having given us all of that, you would open our eyes this morning to understand how those things can become ours in a more consistent and continual and real way. How do we see what's invisible? How do we have something of the substance of that which is not yet fully handed over to us? How will we endure in a world that is poisonous to every beautiful and true thing when we're called to follow you? So we ask that you would stoop low and give and give with both hands. And not just us, but Father, we think of people gathered around the world right now or yet to gather or already gone home who have come with one hope that what you say is true and that you really are and you are a rewarder of those that seek you. So we come and we ask for here and everywhere that as men and women and children turn their face toward you and meet you at the mercy seat, that you would meet them and that your kindness would be displayed to them. Your majesty, purity, your astonishing mercy. That your people would see you afresh. And then, God, that the rest of this week we would be little mirrors, little imperfect but real pictures of your greatness to everyone that meets us. Help us, Father, for the glory of your name, that it would be hallowed, that your kingdom would come, that your will would be done here, just like it is in heaven. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we're looking again at the theme of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. And you remember that a disciple is different than a pupil. Uh, a disciple is more than a person that sits and takes notes. And, you know, the, with your mind, you, you try to learn everything you're supposed to learn. And then you come back and you take the test and you fill in the blanks or, you know, multiple choice and, and you get them all right. And God is happy with you. And that's not really the Christian life. The Christian life really isn't something that we're primarily doing in a building when we're learning. The Christian life really is just every moment living in a continual transaction spiritually where your soul and the triune God are in sweet friendship, communion, where he gives and you embrace and you respond and he is pleased. And all of that flows, of course, from the love of God that predates creation. And it's all brought to bear in our lives by the work of the Spirit. But it is primarily 
in the person of Jesus of Nazareth that we see what a Christian life looks like. So being a disciple is being trained or apprenticed by Christ in everyday ways. It's on-the-job training. And we looked at how that must include the issue of faith, trusting God, believing Him, where the mind thinks differently because of what He reveals in Scripture, where the heart is inclined or bends toward different objects than it used to because of what God says in the Bible, and the will, the decision. These are altered by what God says in the Bible. So the life of faith. We're following Christ as believers because Jesus, as a true human, was the perfect believer. If you think of faith connected only with conversion or with sin, then you misunderstand. And it wouldn't make sense to describe Christ as a believer. But the Bible does describe the Son of God as our mediator here on earth as one who perfectly believed, perfectly trusted, perfectly uh, responded to the word of his father. Now, when we talk about faith, I mentioned last week that there are two great arenas in which it is active. So there is the area of duty that by faith, because we believe the things that God says, we set our face like flint, not marshmallows, you know, not mushy, not, not, not able to be smushed a little this way and pushed a little that way. But like our Lord, our face is set, immovable. Our heart's determination by the grace of God is that we will trust and follow and obey him until we see Christ face to face. And faith is the instrument by which that's going to be accomplished. It's where we get the fuel for that. It's where our feet are guided on the path. It's what causes us to really persevere. And we saw that in Hebrews chapter 11. By faith. And then there's a list of kind of the heroes of the Old Testament. And how they, throughout the remainder of their life, however long that was, how they lived on what God said and did not turn back. So faith has to do with duty. But there's another thing that faith has to do with. And that's what we're going to be talking about in coming weeks, next week in particular. And that is faith has to do with the constant reception or taking, receiving from Christ all that you need to live that life. How do you clothe yourself with Christ? How do you put on Christ hour by hour? How do all these great realities on the pages of our Bible, how do they reach the very practical aspects of your life day by day? And that is in part by faith. We lean upon him. We cling to him. We receive from him. We look to him. We rest in him abide in him. All those metaphors for ways that we are continually relating to Christ Monday through Saturday. And all of these are ways by which we continually receive all that we need from him as our savior to live to him. But if we're going to talk about this wonderful communion, this friendship that we have, this channel of faith 
by which we receive from him, if we're going to talk about that communion, we're going to have to first stop and look at union. So think of what the scripture says, kind of summed up in some simple statements. There is no way for you to be discipled by Christ if you are not in Christ. There is no way for you to belong to Christ if you are not in Christ. There is no way for you to receive the fullness of this purely gracious gift in the new covenant, this life. There is no way to receive anything from Christ if you are not in Christ. Union with Christ is the reason that all those transactions between your soul and your God are possible. And so it is a truth in the Bible that we need to really be clear on. And that's what we'll talk about this morning. And there is so much there in the Bible about union with Christ that we are only going to be able to hit the high points. And you know what happens when we have one of these. It, it means that I've looked you know, over all these things and then I have 20 pages of notes and then we can't handle 20 pages of notes. And so I have 20 pages of notes stuck into 45 minutes of rapid fire and that doesn't help. So I have tried to throw away a lot so all I can do this morning is we can kind of be reintroduced to the great theme of the Christian's union with Christ. And I hope that then you could take it and go back to your Bibles and at some point in the near future, give a serious study of this. We find it throughout the New Testament, particularly in phrases like in Christ or with Christ or in him or with him. And we will look at a number of verses this morning to introduce that. When we think of the rescue of a sinner, how does a person go from being a self-absorbed, self-worshipping, self-sufficient in our own minds, self-ruling individual to a person who, even though they haven't seen Christ, they love him? And rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory to belong to somebody else. For him to be their ruler, him to be their sufficiency, him to be the reason that your feet hit the floor in the morning. And, and he is the one that calms the heart in the evening. How do you go from that, which we were, to what a Christian is? Well, when you think of the many doctrines of redemption that are connected with that, with our rescue. So whether you're thinking of, you know, God's calling us, not just through the preaching that our ears hear, but, you know, like Christ spoke of, God teaching us within. Nobody comes to the Father unless the Father teaches them. That is, something is so stubborn about our hearts. The problem's not our brain, not our ears. That if God himself doesn't, in a way, call the heart, we don't come. That's mysterious. And then there's other things about salvation that are mysterious. Regeneration. Christ says it's mysterious. It's the work of the Spirit is like the wind. You don't know where it comes from. You don't know where it ends up. You can't even see the wind. You have to see the effects of the wind. There are many things in, in the Christian life that are invisible to your eyes right now. And all you can see is the effects. Adoption. 
Justification. Glorification, which is yet to come. I mean, so many things are mysterious. But when we come to the gospel and we have these questions, which are good questions, like what? What is salvation? I mean, really, is it more than just getting out of hell? Why? Why would he do this? Who? Who does which, you know, when you look at all the aspects of salvation, so who does this part and who does this part and for whom did he do it? Well, those are all good questions, but there's another question, and that's the one that union with Christ answers, and that is how. How can the things that the Bible talks about, which seem too good to be true, how can they actually be ours? How can regeneration, justification, sanctification, persevering grace, glorification, how can adoption, how can any of that be ours? And how is it anything more than just church talk? When we think about the great truths of, and the great works of God, in apply, especially in applying what Christ has done to your life, Union with Christ is not just one of them. It really is kind of the umbrella term. It is, maybe you think of it as the soil in which all of these plants grow. Whether it's the call of God on our heart, or regeneration, or faith, or repentance, or justification, or adoption, or sanctification, or glorification, every one of those is united to union with Christ. They are rooted in it. It's the soil in which each of them exists and it is the, it's the channel by which each of those are experienced. Nothing that Christ did, nothing that the Father planned, nothing that the Spirit has been promised and sent to apply is yours without union with Christ. Or being in Christ. Arthur Pink wrote a book called Union and Communion. I have a copy of it. I think it's out of print now. I got it from uh, our pastor in Wales. I found it in my library this week. And um, when I opened it up, I saw his name written in it. So I was, it was kind of like, uh, I was really excited that I had a book with Vernon Heim's name in it. But um, this is what Pink says. He gives in his introduction a whole lot of introduction. And then he gives like nine chapters where each chapter is on a different aspect of union with Christ. And it's just so tempting to say, okay, guys, for the next nine weeks, we're, we'll just kind of follow alongside Mr. Pink, but we're not going to do that. This is what Arthur Pink wrote about union with Christ, the doctrine, the reality. He says, this doctrine is arguably the most important, the most profound, the most blessed of any truth set forth regarding the Christian in his or her relationship to God. So we're not saying it's a greater doctrine than the doctrine of God and the attributes of God. But when we're talking about the area of, of our relationship, how we connect with our creator, union with Christ is the most profound, most blessed, most important doctrine. But then he goes on to say, however, it's often true 
that this is a doctrine which is neglected or only considered in such a fragmentary, you know, partial way that we grasp little of its consequences theologically and practically. I think we would agree. So this is a doctrine that shows up so often, in, especially in the New Testament, Paul's writings, in him, with him, in Christ, with Christ, and how that affects everything, just changes everything. And we read over those, I have so often, read over those kind of quickly and glanced at them and tipped my hat to them. Oh, he's talking about union with Christ and, and not slowed down to think, is this really the most profound, the most sweet, the most essential of doctrines for me as I relate to God? Well, as I said, there's so much. So what we're going to do is we'll probably just try to get kind of a summary, a survey of the big truths connected with union with Christ, its characteristics its benefits, and then some applications. All right, so what are the characteristics? When we look at the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, and we're especially in the New Covenant where it's so clearly explained, what are the characteristics of union with Christ? Well, let me give you a few. First, when you read the old writers, you will often find that they describe it as a mystical union. Christ's union with his mystical body. All right. Now, there are many things in the Bible that are mysterious, and that's what the word mystical means. All right. So don't think of um, kind of a monk or a nun uh, isolated in a monastery or a nunnery and just kind of closing their eyes and humming and, and having a, uh, an experience as they try to imagine things about God. We're not talking about that kind of mysticism. We're not talking about sentimentalism and just strong feelings. We're talking about a mysterious union, a mystical or mysterious union. When you read the Bible, there are other unions that are mysterious that have to do with God. So three of them, there is the union of the triune God. The Bible is so very clear. It teaches there is one God. And yet it also speaks of three persons in that Godhead. One divine nature expressed or existing in three persons. The Father, the Son, and Spirit. Not persons like we think of persons, like we could sit them on the front row, one, two, three, and if we hollered one of their names and said, move over to the other side, that suddenly that you, know, you could separate them. All existing eternally, co-eternally, sharing that same divine nature great mystery. There's another union that's mysterious. The union of the divine nature in the person of God the Son with our humanity. That Jesus of Nazareth really is a true combination in one person of two natures. He's the only one that has two natures. You don't have two natures. He is divine and he is human. And they are combined without creating some third nature. They are forever combined, inseparably combined. That's a great mystery. But then there's this union with Christ. Christ's bond, Christ's intimate connection, Christ's living connection 
with his church, with the Christian. When Paul talks about mysteries, which he loves to talk about in the New Testament, he's talking about things that have been, that God has hidden for a while, and then when it came to the right time, he pulls back the veil and he shows us the truth. So these things have been purposefully kept for the right moment. These are mysteries. Paul talks about a lot of mysteries, but there are two times in the New Testament where Paul separates or distinguishes some aspect of our salvation and calls it a great mystery. So not just the normal mystery, and there are many of those, but then there are two great mysteries. First, the mystery, he calls it, of godliness or of the fact that Christ comes and God is united to humanity to save those who are strutting right before his face in their pride. First Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, Paul writes this. By common confession, every Christian agrees, he says, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh, who was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up to glory. That's the mystery of godliness. He's not talking about great is the mystery of a godly life, but the source of all of that, God come in the flesh, in the person of a son. That is a great mystery. Second, in Ephesians 5, verse 32, when Paul is describing at the end of that chapter, uh, toward the end, you know, the, the relationship of a husband to a wife and a wife to a husband, and he gives this great picture of a, a woman and a man coming together, and those two separate people, in a sense, become one, and the bond is so unique and so intimate that the two f- become one flesh, and Paul says, It's a great mystery. It's like Christ who loved his people and gave himself for his church, for his bride. And he makes them to be his wife, his body. In verse 32, Paul uses that description of great mystery again. He says this, this mystery is great. But I am speaking with reference to Christ in the church. So, not marriage, Christ in the church. That intimate union, that unbreakable bond by which the Christian is in Christ and Christ is in the Christian forever. That is a great mystery, he says. In John 17, toward the end of his ministry, Christ prays before he's crucified That whole chapter, John 17, that great priestly prayer, and listen to what he prays to the Father, what he requests regarding those who one day will hear the gospel, that includes you, and who are, who embrace God through that gospel, Christian, and he prays with regard to this union with God. It's quite a mysterious passage. Verse 20, 21 and 20. Uh, through 23, he says this, I do not ask, I don't pray on behalf of these standing in front of him alone, 
but for those also who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them, you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Now, he is not only praying for a horizontal unity among Christians. He is praying that as people are brought into the kingdom, they would primarily be brought into union with God, that there would be a wonderful oneness. And because of that, then, of course, a unity between ourselves. How do you explain that? It's mysterious. Now, when the Bible talks about this union between your soul and Christ, all right, don't, don't be, don't let yourself kind of zone out. This is, you got to put your thinking cap on this morning, but that doesn't mean that it, it's, you know, just a general truth, all right? So if I had time, I just would start naming everybody, you know. We'll start with Deborah. We'll say, well, Deborah, A, a Deborah Autry, this this union between Deborah Autry and God in the person of Christ, this unbreakable union, is mysterious. How can Deborah be united to Christ? How can she be in the Son of God and Him in her? And the Bible, knowing it's mysterious, gives us analogies, comparisons. These aren't perfect, exact comparisons. It's saying this is like something else. But let me give you those. There's a few of them. You know them. There's the first one, which I already mentioned, husband and wife, Ephesians 5. Paul compares the union that the Christian has to Christ with that intimate union that a husband has with a wife. They become one flesh. And Paul writes to the Corinthians and says that we who are Christ's, we've become one spirit with him. A second Analogy. So there's the husband and wife kind of connection. And so the Christian is in Christ, united to Christ, receiving from Christ, in many ways, like the union of a husband and wife. But there's a more amazing picture. There's the body. In Ephesians 4, verse 15 and 16, you remember the text? Paul says, we are, Christians are, to grow up in all respects Grow up into him who is, who is the head, Christ. From whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building of, of itself in love. So, we are part of the body. Each Christian is an individual, but part of a whole. And that whole is connected to a living head. And just like with the human body, if you chop off a part of it and it's no longer connected to the head, it is no longer a living part of that body. So if if a person has a finger cut off in an accident and they hold that finger up and they say, man, how strange, there's my finger. Well, it's no longer a living finger. 
It's not connected to the head. And if you could, in some way, sever a Christian spiritually from the spiritual union they have with the Son of God, if they could go from being in Christ to out of Christ, then that person would no longer have spiritual life. The body, another picture that helps us. A plant with its branches, or the vine and the branches. John 15, you remember. In verse 5, Christ says to the disciples, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, the one that remains in me, attached to me, and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. So Christ uses that analogy of the vine and the branch to help the believers in that day to understand that the only way that they really are alive, and not just alive, but really are fruitful, that, that the spiritual things that God has saved us to produce in and through us, those things occur as we are constantly uh, connected in a living way with the vine. Cut the branch off, and even though the leaves or the fruit might still be on the branch for a while, that branch is no longer a living branch. Another picture, one more. Building and foundation. Ephesians 2, verse 19. So then, Paul says to the, to the Gentiles, you're no longer strangers and aliens, but are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. You're the house of God. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. Peter talks about it too in 1 Peter 2. You also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. When we look at a house and we see that, you know, we've just had kind of a, a bit of a storm last, was it yesterday? And, um, and so everything's blowing about and rain's crashing. And when you drive down the road and all the houses are still there, you, you know that they're connected to a foundation. When God is building a people, he describes us as a temple that he would dwell in that would be holy, separated just for him. But how he makes that is, these living stones are pieced together by God. But all of them are united to the foundation, Christ. Now, there's so many mysterious things about this, but let me just kind of summarize a couple more before we go on to the next thing. One of the great mysteries of these things is that the Bible is not exaggerating when it describes a Christian as a person being in Christ. It is not just language to kind of pick you up for the day, you know, and just kind of a, a nice thought to encourage you. That would be cruel for God to say to us, every Christian is in him, and in him I deal with the Christian differently than I deal with anyone else, if it were just fiction. And if God's descriptions were exaggerations to kind of make the point, like we do, 
but it was not really, in reality, it's not as great as he describes, then that would be cruel. But these are not exaggerations. These are children's pictures in those board books that only have five pages that you read to an infant. These are children's pictures for little kids spiritually who cannot grasp the infinite mystery of Christ united to his church. Another wonderful thing about these mysteries is that the greatest mystery is not what I've mentioned yet, but that all of that that I've mentioned is love. That he, that the Father's plans would include Christ to be everlastingly connected to you, Christian. That it is the Father's plan, that's his delight, it's his love for the unlovely. That is the reason that a Christian is in Christ. It's, it's the son's delight. It's the son's unmeasured and unrestrained love for his enemy that causes Christ to give himself on behalf of his people and for them to be united to him. It is the love of the spirit that takes the unbeliever and breaks our hearts, opens our eyes, softens the you know, softens us and our hearts so that we love what's right, we believe what's right, we run to what's right, and in a very imperfect but real way, we grab hold of Christ and receive all that he is according to the scripture, by the gospel. But it is the spirit who has brought you to that point. It's the spirit who is sent by the Father and the Son to dwell in the Christian. It is the spirit, the Bible says, who baptizes us into Christ, who unites us to Christ, who places us in Christ. It is the love of a triune God. Are you, are you still unamazed at union with Christ? We can, we can think about, we're going to look at some very amazing things in a moment, but we're still talking about this issue that it's mysterious, but the greatest mystery is not that it's eternal and it's all these other wonderful things. The greatest mystery is, it is, it is the expression of God's love for people who are so unlovely and unlike him. Again, do we, we can just go down the list, right? Just go across the road. Joseph, Andrea. How can Joseph and Andrea be in Christ? Because he loved Joseph and Andrea. How can he love Joseph and Andrea? He drew all the reasons from within himself. The distance between the uncreated and, and burningly pure God, the cause of all things, the distance between him and you, Ron Franks, or you, Derek, is so vast. How can you be united to the living God in the person of his son? It's a great mystery. It is one of the great mysteries. How could God want you? And do all that so you would be. That's a greater mystery. Also. Last thing I want to say about the mystery. And this is our longest point. Is this. In each of these verses we're going to look at. And each of these pictures that the Bible gives us. The house and the foundation. The husband and the wife. The branch and its vine. I just forgot one didn't I? Ah, The head and the body. In each of these pictures, there is a secondary truth, which the Bible teaches in other places as well. And that is, Christ, by the Father's choice, 
as the God-man, as mediator, as savior, is not complete without his church. As eternal God, of course he's complete. But as the God-man, the bringing of every one of his people into himself and the maturing and growing and protecting and sanctifying and preserving and then completing on the last day, he is incomplete as our mediator until that occurs. Paul says to the Ephesians at the end of chapter 1, which Chuck read, that the church is his body, the fullness of him that fills everything. How do you explain that? Infinite God filling and overflowing the edge of all creation. What is his fullness? The church is the fullness of Christ, the God-man, as our mediator. Well, that's mystery. It's a mysterious union. Let me give you the others, and they're more quick. It is real. Just because it's mysterious and spiritual doesn't mean it's fictional. It is invisible, isn't it? None of us becomes a Christian, and suddenly some, some strange physical thing happens where people can tell you're connected to Christ. But all the analogies that I read can be invisible too, and yet they're all real. Think of the building and the foundation. We look at this church, people notice the building, nobody looks at the foundation, but we know there's a foundation. You look at a tree, you look at its branch, you look at its fruit, and if you think of the tree and its roots, you know that that's a tree. I cannot see its roots, but I know they exist. You see a wife, this is Mrs. So-and-so, where's her husband? Oh, uh, I think he just chased one of the kids. They went running, so he's chasing after one of the kids. But we know that there has to be a husband if she is a wife. It's a real union, though it is mysterious and invisible. And the reason we know it is, is because God took the time through so many passages to explain that it exists and what it is and how it changes things. A third thing about this union is that it has no start and it has no end. And that means we have to look at the biggest picture, not just when we embrace Christ. And there is a starting point for when you experience the privileges of a Christian. Forgiveness, the conscience cleansed, you know, the life empowered. Well, that has a starting place. The application of those privileges does have a starting place. We'll talk about that in a minute. But union with Christ in its greatest sense, in the big picture of the Bible, actually has no starting place. No day that it started and no day that it will end. And this is the deep end of the pool. So if this is something that bothers you, put your floaties on, all right? Because we're going to jump in anyway. We'll push you in and you'll, you'll live. But it's not easy for any of us. There is something about this union with Christ that is timeless, so let me read again two verses that Chuck already read from Ephesians 1. We tend to think of them as dealing with God's sovereignty, the choices of God. But think of them in connection with union with Christ. It's beginning. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, in union with Christ. Just as, and then he starts listing these, just as he chose us in him. 
One of the simplest things you can do to get just a, a very clear and concrete picture of the privileges of union with Christ is just read through Paul's letter with a pencil or a pen and mark every place he uses the word in or with and then Christ. Speaking of the Christian's relation, it is in him that we were chosen before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he goes on to say, he predestined us to adoption in Christ. God in eternity past, which means there was no, if we think about it in very human childish terms, there was not a day on the calendar of God which is endless. There is not a day where he, father turned to son and spirit and said, I have a plan I'd like for us to discuss. I mean, that's not how God operates. He's not like us. We speak about the eternal counsels of redemption, but that's a human way of describing a divine event that the Bible refers to, but certainly does not explain that God in eternity past, in the timelessness, before time began to be measured, it has always been the delight of the triune God that the Son would be chosen or foreknown or as Peter, the, Hebrew, the Greek that Peter uses in his letter, foreordained. The Son is the foreordained representative of His people that He is chosen as the rescuer. And every one of God's enemies, which he mysteriously decides to love in eternity past and sets his heart upon them and chooses them to rescue them, which without that we would have no hope, every one of them was chosen by virtue of union with Christ. Chosen in Christ. So, It is a mystery, and God does not explain it. And if you buy a big book on Ephesians 1, 3, and 4, and someone devotes 800 pages to it, they can explain the fact that it's a mystery more than I just explained it, but they have not figured it out either because it is beyond us. It's something that God reveals and we accept, but we cannot fully grasp that in eternity past, the Father's perfect delight for the Son has always been expressed in choosing him to be the mediator who would receive the kingdom. And every single name in that kingdom that no man can number was chosen by virtue of union in Christ. In other words, God has always, Arthur Pink says, contemplated the Christian, even in eternity past before you were born, he has always contemplated the Christian in connection with Christ. And he has always contemplated the Son of God in connection with his people. An extraordinary mystery. It is a mysterious union. It is a union that is real. It has no beginning or end. Let me give you the fourth thing. It is unbreakable. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Paul asks in Romans 8. Is that confidence based in the fact that Paul knows every Roman Christian and is confident that every Roman Christian that he knows will press on toward the all the way to the end? That none of them will stumble and fall and turn back. 
The confidence is not based in anything in them or in Paul or in how well he taught them or will one day arrive and teach them. It's not based in all that he wrote in his letter to the Romans. And if you get all of this under your belt and just kind of keep it in front of you, you'll never turn back. It is based in this. It is, there is a love that God has for us and it is received in, as we are united in Christ. And since it is an indissoluble union, an unbreakable bond, you cannot be separated from the love of Christ. Christian. Do you see how this changes the way we think of ourselves, how the way we think of God, the Christian life? Do you see how what one theologian, one of my favorites, John Murray, Presbyterian from first half of the uh, middle of the 20th century, Murray writes on this and he says, the very complexion of time and space of your life, of this moment and of wherever you are and what are your, whatever you're doing, the very complexion of time and space in the Christian's life is altered by the understanding of union with Christ. Well, let's go to the benefits. We won't be able to hit them all, just hit some of the highlights. Because God, in eternity past, laid out that great plan of rescue, and in doing that, in the mind of the triune God, the believer, the follower today, or yet to come, or ever has been, is united to that Christ. That means everything that that Christ will do 2,000 years ago as the mediator, everything he does as the God-man, he does and he is viewed by the Father as connected with the believer, which is why the things that he does can impact you. Quick summary of them. What Christ did, because you were in him, in the great determination of the triune God, what Christ did on the cross, giving himself, dying, and then being raised, affects you. Romans 6, verse 1 through 11 explains it. Let me just point to verse 8. Let me give you one thing. Because of union with Christ, when he died on the cross and was buried, that means that the old you, when you embrace Christ by faith, the old you has already been killed by God. The old identity. The me that lived for me. That one's dead. A new life comes raised by God. Like when he raised his son. Romans 6 talks about this. If we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. And he's not saying if you've put to death your selfishness. He's saying when Christ died, everyone who has embraced Christ today has also died with him by virtue of that great union in the plan of God that impacts you. The old you is dead because God the Father united you to him in the great plans of redemption before you were born. He goes on to say, even so consider yourselves to be dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. In union with Christ, when he was raised from the dead, he goes on to say, you, you are raised. By virtue of the empty tomb 
every believer, not only is the old you put to death, and though you can still sin, you still have that propensity, which Paul calls the flesh, but what he calls the old man or the old self, that's gone. So you can never go back to the old you. And a new you is alive. Ephesians says it this way in chapter 2. Being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. That's how you're alive. And he raised us up with him. That's how you've been raised from a spiritual tomb. And he has seated us presently. That's amazing. With him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Ephesians goes on to say this. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. You, if you are a Christian, the old you is gone and a new you is here. It has been newly created. It's been raised from a spiritual tomb. How? By virtue of union with Christ. In him. With him. In him you have been newly created. None of those realities are based on how you're doing this morning. They are based on what God did when he chose to unite you to his son, even in eternity past. Sins are forgiven because you're united to Christ. Why does his death on the cross mean anything to a person today other than just a sentimental stirring of our hearts? What a great love. I want to, I want to live for the person that loved me like that. Why is the cross more than that? Ephesians 1, Chuck read it. Verse 7, in him, in union with him, we, in him, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. How in the world does that affect you? Well, I am in him. We are presently in Christ. Even now, Paul said in Ephesians 2, verse 6, raised with him, seated with him in the heavenly places. That is, that this union with Christ is so real that when Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father, every believer is represented by that. And it is as if you are seated there. You're not God. We're not the ruler of the universe. But we are given a share in that dignity that our elder brother has. We are with him by virtue of this union. Now, all of that is way up here. But union with Christ, of course, has to do with down here, which is what we're talking about next week. Communion. All these are real, but they are not actually yours. They are not experienced by anyone today until you are united to Christ by faith. That you embrace Christ and that the Spirit is placed within you and that the Spirit takes the believer and places you in Him. That's what enables all these eternal plans in which all was accomplished with you in mind. You contemplated in union with Christ so that all that He did applies to you, but the way it reaches you is when by the wonderful conquering work of God, you turn to him and you hand everything you know to him and grab hold of everything you know of him. 
And then Paul can say, every possible spiritual blessing is yours in Christ. And we live on that. Well, there's so much more we can say. Let me just bring it down to the application. First, obviously, this is a doctrine which shows up so frequently in the New Testament. And I agree with theologians who say that the great heart of Paul's uh, teaching is not justification by faith. It is union with Christ. And from union with Christ, all other aspects flow. This doctrine is so significant, it alters everything about how God views the Christian and how the Christian now views God. How you think of God this morning has to be dictated, recalibrated by union with Christ. If God the Father refuses to contemplate you in eternity past or in the future or even in your very imperfect moment right now where your worship is not all that it ought to be and you could accuse yourself and your conscience would rise up and say, well, if you were hoping in yourself, you blew it this morning. Even now, the Father refuses to contemplate you separated from Christ and his perfections. What an amazing thing. Simple question. Will you determine by the help of God to contemplate God in virtue of your union with Christ? To see him not merely as the, you know, the absolute self-existing, consuming fire, but as the God who has been reconciled to you, brought you near to himself, nearer than any preacher can explain. And he has done that by uniting you to his son, even in the, the eternal counsels. Can you quit judging God by providence or in modern language, by what's happening in your life right now? So hard circumstances, one after the next. And as far as you know, it's not because you're choosing to sin against God. It's just that God is allowing hard circumstances, like Job's life. And are you tempted to think of God through the lens of what's been happening last week? Maybe on the national level, maybe the church, maybe the family, marriage, kids, or what you see when you look in the mirror. Stop doing that. And if you are a person who is a follower of Christ then you have to recalibrate. You have to see God through this unaltering union, not through the events of the day. And put away every harsh thought that would find room in your mind if you're not careful. So it changes everything about the way he thinks of you, so to speak, and how you think of him. Of course, it changes everything about how you live daily life when you leave the building. Right now, we are at, what, 600 Hamilton Drive? Okay. I mean, I just tell the UPS man, go to the road ends, and there's going to be a giant gravel parking lot, and leave my package there, right? Where are we? Well, right now, we're at 600 Hamilton Drive, but in a few hours, you'll be back at your address. But is that really the address of the Christian? Can you understand that from, this, from the moment you embraced him, it became your experience, but long before that, it was reality that we are in Christ 
if we're followers of Christ. So in other words, that, that becomes the dominating, unchangeable address of your, of your life. You go to bed in Christ. That's the address. You wake up this morning in Christ. You will go to work. Where's my work? Well, it's down. No, no. Where is it? It's in Tupelo. No, where is it really? Oh, well, it's, it's in Christ that I work. It's in Christ that I play with my kids. It's in Christ that I sit up late at night and talk with my wife. It's in Christ that I, I struggle and question. It's in Christ that I'm happy. Remember when Paul wrote to the Colossians? To the believers and faithful in Colossae, in Christ. So where do you live? Well, we live in Colossae. We live in the town that Colossians live in, but we live in Christ. So we have dual address for the rest of your Christian life in Christ and wherever you're at the moment. But one of them is more significant. Does it change the way you think? Will you take time for serious, long soaks in the doctrine of union with Christ? In 1812, a pastor in England, I forget his name, he wrote this. We treat the scriptures in the present day, 1812, as though the less that we knew of the deep doctrines of God, the better. You know, like it, if, if you don't go too deep, you don't get confused. If you don't go too deep, then, you know, doctrine divides you. So if you just don't have any doctrine besides the very basics, then, you know, we, it's just easy. We all just hold hands and we're all the same and... But Pink was right. We spiritually bankrupt ourselves if we don't give serious study to the new covenant doctrine of union with Christ. So don't just read over it quickly. If we avoid that and we say, well, I heard a sermon on it, that's enough. Then you will surely be in your coming days like you were in the past days. A person, if you're a Christian, it's like a child living in the house of the king, adopted into the family, but struggling with the things that adopted children struggle with. Am I really loved? Is is this all really for me? Can I really walk into the family room and sit by the father? Can I walk up to the table and eat as much as I want? Can I wear the clothes that are in my closet? Can I really tell people that my name is now his name? You're like a malnutritioned kid hiding scraps because you don't understand how infinitely welcome you are not because of your goodness but because you are in Christ so the Christian can live pretty beggarly if we will just approach the doctrine of union with Christ lazily surface level It's not just a theological doctrine. It's not just a truth that's impressive. It is something that has to be taken and and beat down into every crack of the life, permeating it, spreading through it, infecting everything about thoughts and desires and choices. And it will be a lifetime task. But we'll take all that he is And live on it only as far as we understand that this whole issue of union with Christ. Now, let me just say, what if you're not in Christ? In the sense of right now, enjoying that. What if you have 
never surrendered the Christ to him, the life to him? What if you have rejected his claims or said to him, not yet? Then the Bible describes you as still in sin, or we say in Adam. When it comes to your daily experience, when it comes to what you're receiving, it's not in Christ, it's in Adam. It's in the wrong family. You were born on the wrong side of the tracks. You're receiving the wrong inheritance. And you don't like it. Nobody does. We don't like the death and the ruin and the gloom and the despair that comes from being united to the representative that rejected God. But that's all humanity by nature. And if you will not embrace Christ, whatever the mysterious past choices of God, you have nothing from him except the common kindness that God shows all of his creation. And in Adam, you are constantly being given things from from union with Adam that you don't want, but you can't refuse them at the door. All that death and all the despair and all the ruin of sin, and all the guilt, and all the shame, and all the emptiness, which is all covered with a cloak of deceit that says, well, it's not that bad right now. All of it is your daily allowance from Adam. And that is all you will ever have, and it doesn't matter how much you say you believe, or how many Bible passages you read, or book studies you go to, or prayers you pray, or dollars you give, or churches you join. It doesn't help you at all. You must go from being in Adam to in Christ. How does it happen? You take him at his word, and you look at those glorious commands, those royal invitations of the gospel, just Read them again. Start marking them in your Bible and throw yourself on him. Go to him. I want nothing to do with Adam and that inheritance any longer. God, I am ashamed and I don't deserve your love, but you gave yourself to be the friend of sinners and I'm a sinner and I'm coming. I am weary and heavy laden. I'm coming. I am stained and my my sins have stained my soul scarlet, but I want them to be white as snow. So I am coming. I am coming to hand everything to you, to trust you with everything. And we go from being in Adam to in Christ. And I suppose it will take all the moments of eternity, unending, to be taught the fullness of what it Uh, of the reality of what an enormous change that is. Paul writes in Romans this wonderful doxology. I'll read it and then we'll just sit for a moment of silence before we're dismissed. And if you're a visitor and um, you don't know that we normally have lunch, so lunch will be provided in the room to my left. Everyone's invited if you're a visitor. Uh, Members, grab visitors and taken to the front of the line. Paul writes this, Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, to the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be the glory forever. Amen.